Hi, this is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of uh, interviewing for this podcast my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Reita Ribeiro, who is in the Department of Surgical Oncology at Erastas Gardner Hospital in Curitiba, Brazil. And the reason for the podcast is the December lead article titled uh, Uterine Transposition for Fertility in Ovarian Function Preservation After Radiotherapy. Reitan, uh, great to see you and welcome uh, back to the podcast. Thank you, Pedro. It's uh, great to see you and uh, it's an honor to join you today to, to speak a little bit about it. Excellent. Um, so Reitan, obviously a uh, great topic and um, amazing work that you have done on, on the uh, subject of uh, uterine transposition. Um, I wanted to just start, if you could just tell us briefly, what is uterine transposition and what was the genesis, the beginning of this procedure? So uterine transposition is basically moving the, the not just the uterus, but the uterus and an exit to the upper abdomen, uh, prior radiation uh, in, a pa in a patient who needs uh, pelvic radiation. So we know that the, the ovarian vessels are capable of keeping the vascularization of the uterus and, uh, and uh, tubes and ovaries because of uh, radical tracheolectomy. And we, we also know that the, if you move the ovaries to the upper abdomen, you will keep their, their function. So it started when um, some patients, and one patient, specifically patient, came to me. She was going to treat uh, rectal cancer. And uh, she didn't want to do radiation, and she had like this book tumor, and she she had like clear indication of radiation, and she was decided not to have radiation because she wanted to to preserve their, her fertility. And in the end, I was like spent many days thinking about it, and then suddenly I I just realized that well, I'm doing ovarian transposition, I'm doing radical tracheolectomies. <laughs> uh, it's basically like adding the, you know, like doing both procedures in the same patient. Obviously there are some modifications and uh, and I think that's that's pretty much it. The, the idea is quite simple. And I think that's one of the nicest thing about it because it's a very simple concept. So so that's how it started. My God, excellent. So, uh, um, you know, obviously when looking at this study, uh, this is a this is a small study, but nevertheless a very important contribution to to the literature. Um, tell us about the aims of this particular study. So when we decide to do it, we realize that it's very hard to to uh, to have information about fertility and uh, and in the long run because you need lots of patients for many years. And we realize, well, we have to start with something. And and if the patients don't preserve their uterus or if the ovaries is not uh, are not functioning, so they will not preserve their fertility. So then we decided to look for mainly uh, gonadal function and a uterine function, which we decide that would be like regular menses, like a, a normal hormonal uh, levels and and this. And, uh, and obviously we were looking also for fertility, but mainly we want to know if we were able to preserve their uterus in a normal menses and hormonal function. And that's why we decided to do this small uh, trial because we also knew that it was going to be very hard to have uh, lots of patients. Probably we would never have like 100 patients in the study like that. 
So we need to start with something uh, very uh, small. And we use the first uh, prospective study of, about uh, uterine transplant as a model. So we looked for for the studies from the guys from Sweden, which are great and they did a really great job. So we tried to do something similar looking for, obviously they it's a different setting, but the idea is quite the same. It's like, let's look for a small group of patients and see what happens. Yeah, I mean, it, it must have been uh, quite quite a trajectory, obviously, as you mentioned, from that initial point of saying, well, can this happen? To obviously then looking at all of the repercussions of what this procedure would entail and the outcomes and the measurements of those outcomes. So obviously, con congratulations to you for, for having that, that bright moment. Um, so tell us about this, you know, the results of, of your study and what are the main highlights of, of the work presented here? So we have included eight patients and uh, we managed to evaluate six patients in the end because one patient lost her uterus. So she had a necrosis. Uh, it was a very particular case and some anatomical variations that we can discuss this later, but anyway, she lost her uterus, but she kept one of the ovaries. So she kept hormonal function. Mm -hmm. So it was converted to a ovarian transposition. Well, the one other case, the patient died from cancer before repositioning the uterus to the pelvis. So we didn't manage to evaluate if the uterus would keep working after the treatment. So we have these, let's say, six patients that managed to preserve their uterus, uh, which is quite good if you think about it. And we know that those six patients would have lost her uterine function, let's say, if they have left uh, their uterus in the pelvis. So what we realized that out of eight patients, one patient died, so we didn't manage to evaluate. And of the seven patients who were supposed to preserve their uterus, one of them lost their, her uterus, and the other six uh, managed to, to preserve their uterus. So compared to what we have now, it's quite, I think it's a quite good result. And, uh, and also all of these six patients, the seven patients, even the patient who lost her uterus, she still has like normal hormonal function. So I think that's a, you are adding something to our ovarian transposition. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, quite, yeah, I mean, obviously it's a, it's a, a unique patient population, so unique circumstances as well. Um, and as you mentioned, also a patient population that is predisposed to recurrent disease from their um, original tumor. Now, um, some of these questions, as you know, will come from our fellows. The first question is Giuseppe Caruso, uh, from Italy, he's asking, who do you find is the ideal candidate for uterine transposition today? And what are the absolute contraindications to this procedure? Uh, I think uh, the ideal candidates are those patients who need pelvic radiation and do not have a gynecological tumor, most specifically like uterine, uh, ovarian, obviously, well, we don't usually use radiation for ovarian cancer, but anyways, I think they, they should have a healthy uh, reproductive system, uh, you know, like, uh, and uh, maybe, well, we, we have extended the indications for vulvar cancer and some vaginal cancer, you may think about it. And we are seeing happen with uh, 
cervical cancer, but I I think that's very controversial and we need to to understand way better the procedure before starting doing for cervical cancer. Um, you know, I think the absolute contraindications like cervical cancer, endometrial cancer, or a tumor infiltrating the uterus, like a rectal cancer with infiltrating the uterus or tubes or ovaries. Another contraindication are the uh, like uh, previous ophorectomy, previous radiation. Obviously, if the patient is already infertile, there is no no reason for performing it. And um, and uh, but I think most of all, like cancer evolving the, the those organs and also some anatomical variations. Obviously, you have to consider some uh, uh, contraindications as like previous surgeries that did not involve the uterus, but you may have lots of adhesions and stuff like that, or colon surgery that may difficult, make very difficult to, to dissect the IPs uh, and other procedures that may have uh, compromised the vascularization of the ovaries. Yeah, and Raytan, um, you, you did mention and you alluded to it a little bit. Um, this question comes from Guido Valsaki, where he's asking, why were patients with cervical cancer not included, considering that there are some case reports of uterine transpositions in patients with this disease? Yeah, that's a good question. So when we first got the, the let's say, the approval from the national uh research uh, committee in Brazil, uh, it was supposed, uh, we had sent reports every six months of the patients. We could not include any patient with a gynecological, any gynecological cancer in the beginning. Uh, and then uh, we started offering, I would say like for highly selected patients of cervical cancer, very small tumors, more like micrometastasis, Probably those patients that you are more interested in irradiating the parametrium, paracervix, and the pelvic lymph nodes, and not the cervix itself. So you see that we have published with glauco a few cases with cervical cancer. But I, I'm not completely sure that that's a good indication at this point. And I, I'm very concerned about some uh, uh, surgeons believing that we may use for more advanced tumors or after new adjuvant treatment for cervical cancer. And, you know, I think uh, we need to be a little bit cautious because it's a new procedure. And so uh, maybe we have to, to be really, really careful in the beginning, especially. Yeah. Uh, Matt Wager from Wisconsin, he asked, uh, hormonal function was assessed according to the reported methods. How did ovarian function change following transposition for these patients? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So when we start the trial, we select three centers to to do the trial, and we realize the labs have different uh, normal hormonal levels and stuff like that. So we decided that the normal uh, hormonal level of each lab would be uh, the goal, and all the patients kept like normal. Uh, the same levels before and after the procedure. And one of the things that we realized since the beginning, since the first surgery, that all patients, we, even with the uterus uh, and the cervix attached to the, the umbilicus, they had normal menses. And that's quite, a, a, we were expecting like some delays or even some patients that have like uh, changes in their hormonal cycle. And it didn't happen. They just kept having like regular menses 
including uh, some patients, they report, all patients, they, uh, they report things like, oh, the cycle is exactly the same. It, it's, it takes the same amount of days. It's the same amount of bloody uh, bleeding. And uh, so it's very interesting because it, you know, I would say that even unexpected to have such normal behavior after surgery. So, and we are uh, keep following those patients usually every six months and uh, they have like the same hormonal levels that they have had before surgery. Yeah, amazing. Um, as, as a follow-up to that, uh, Jorge Hegel from Venezuela, he's asking regarding who should follow these patients. Uh, his question is, was the evaluation of these patients hormonal function and menstrual uh, cycles performed by an endocrinologist or a general gynecologist or the gynecologic oncologist? I think that the gynecological oncologist is the right person to do it because you, we we combine all the the knowledge needed for the procedure and for the patient's follow-ups and uh, for selecting patients because we, when I think about all the specialties dealing with these patients, I think we we probably are the, the best specialty to do it because we have all the knowledge that combine fertility sparing surgery, anatomical and uh, surgical experience to perform those cases. So, and in this particular study, all, all the, the patients uh, did it uh, with um, one of uh, our colleagues from Gaineong. So it's, uh, and obviously you can have a, a bigger team and work in, uh, in a multidisciplinary setting, which is ideal. So. Great. Um, now, Rayton, turning over to uh, pregnancies, uh, you mentioned in your study three patients attempted to conceive and two patients were spontaneously successful and delivered healthy babies at 36 and 38 weeks by cesarean section without complications. The next question from uh, Sita um, Sahinakar in Turkey, she asked, um, was pregnancy achieved in anyone that developed complication? Oh, that's a really good question. So actually, one of the patients who had a cervical stenosis, uh, she she got pregnant spontaneously. And she, this is the patient who had a C-section at, at 38 weeks. Uh, so she had a like, quite normal pregnancy, even after having a cervical stenosis. Uh, in the other patient, she didn't have any complication, and it, the first the first baby came from a patient who had like a, I would say like a perfect postoperatory, and she had no, no complication. The patient who did not manage to get pregnant was like the oldest patient in the series, and she started to try in pregnancy when she was 40, 40 and she also had like at the moment of uterine transposition her and to Milarian wasn't that high. I think it was uh, a little bit low. I don't remember exactly the number, but I know that it was in the range of normal because otherwise we wouldn't have, an, have uh, included her. But anyway, she tried like, I think she's going to try again now, but at least two two times, uh, two IVFs. And uh, unfortunately, it didn't work. Okay. Now, um, Jessica Mauro from uh, Italy, uh, she asked, why did you choose to avoid the anastomosis of the cervix to the umbilicus in some patients? I, I remember some of the earlier reports, the cervix was brought up to the umbilicus, but uh, this is not done on every patient. So she's asking why? Yeah. 
Well, you we have to, to think about it. Imagine you are trying something new, right? And uh, with uh, lots of potential for complications. So we wanted to do the, the safest procedure possible. So one of the main reason actually for attaching the umbilicus it was because I obviously the menses, but also I want to check the cervical, uh, like the perfusion, right? So once we started to to understand that we we could like evaluate the patients with MRIs and with other exams and Doppler ultrasound and uh, so little by little we got more confident about not checking visually the the cervix and I actually the first patient I did an anastomosis the cervix was the patient who got pregnant first and we did it because she had a she had this very short left IP. So mm. it was hard to bring the cervix to the umbilical. So we decided, well, let's leave it inside and just keep her. She was using like, uh, I don't remember exactly the, the medication, but we just keep her on uh, oral contraceptives. like, And, uh, and uh, she did fine. So it, the main reason for the first time we did it was anatomically, uh, anatomical uh, short IP. And then we realized that maybe we sh should keep trying because I know it's very awkward. We all know that. <laughs> but I think uh, it was interesting in the beginning because it helped us a lot in the beginning. Very well. Um, so, uh, Rayten, this next question uh, comes uh, regarding a complication. It's also from Jessica Mauro. And she says, that considering the most frequent complication is cervical ischemia, um, what what do you think is the reason for this, and what can you suggest to other surgeons uh, to reduce this risk? Yeah, that's uh, what happened in the beginning. That we were sectioning the uterine artery too close to the cervix, and then in some patients we have the the videos. You can see we are we were entering this this the cervix, so. We we lost the descending branch of the uterine artery, and then we have this ischemia of the cervix. Now what we do it's a more lateral uh, section of the uterine artery, and we try to make sure we have the descending branch of the uterine artery preserved. So we do more like a let's say a type A radical hysterectomy, uh, kind of. I, I wouldn't say it's not, not that much. We just have to make sure you are not entering the cervix uh, because this will cause the devascularization of the cervix. And once we realized that we didn't have any more ischemia of the cervix, so it happened like in the four or five first cases, uh, then we never had it anymore. Very well. Yeah, so just being attentive to not compromising the vascular supply. This uh, next question is also on uh, technical aspects uh, from Sita Sahinakar. Uh, she says, is it necessary to apply any device like a catheter into the cervix to prevent cervical stenosis? Yeah, we, we never used uh, any catheter or device for for avoiding stenosis. Uh, and I, I'm convinced that the stenosis is more related to the, uh, the, the ischemia of the cervix and not to the, the you know, like, something else so we we did not have any stenosis any uh, after doing a more lateral dissection uh, no, if you do not compromise the 
uh, vascularization of the cervix, you, you won't have any stenosis. Yeah. This, uh, this next question from Giuseppe Caruso talks about the future of this procedure. And he's asking, do you think that with modern radiotherapy techniques, such as intensity modulated radiation therapy or IMRT, uterine transposition will have a role in the future? Uh, I, I hope technology evolved at, at the point we don't need it anymore. And um, I think, well, at some point it's going to happen. I have no doubt about it. <laughs> uh, and probably most of the procedures we know nowadays in surgery will disappear. But that's part of the life. And uh, I will have to see it. I mean, it means we are evolving. So we, uh, if you think about it, uh, probably we will also have some other options for those patients, uh, I believe it. And um, yeah, maybe in the future, we don't need it. Uh, up to this point, with any technology I have seen, uh, we still need it. Yeah, and, and again, I mean, that, as you mentioned, that may happen to several of our commonly performed procedures, uh, and that's okay if that's obviously that's okay. better for the patient. Um, yeah. So this next question, again, going back to Guido Vazaki from Argentina, um, he says, considering the great results of the study, would it be beneficial to offer patients oocyte cryopreservation before uterine or ovarian transposition? I think yes. I, I always suggest to all patients to to preserve uh, oocytes to to do vitrification, uh, and also I was very conservative about vitrifications, uh, oocyte vitrification, because most of the patients. Uh, in, in Brazil, what we see, it's getting better, but it's not, it's still not good. Let's say it's a good option. It's it's not. Uh, so I was very into uh, embryo frozen, frozen embryos. But now I realize that following those patients, that like 70% of the patients, they change partners. So mm. embryos are not so useful in this setting. Uh, but I still recommend them to, to have frozen eggs and... Uh, and so I think you have to use all the guns, uh, all the weapons you have to 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 save those patients' fertility. And I think you should combine them. Maybe in the future we we will not use it anymore. But I, I think it's still very valid. And I always indicate the patients to go to the and do this evaluation and preserve ovaries if they can, because in Brazil they have to pay for it. It's not mm. available in the the public health system, so they have to pay for it. And that's the reason why. I would say like 90% of the patients in Brazil, they don't do it. It's because they have to pay for it. Yeah. So, um, Raytan, this question is also on uh, technical aspects from Luigi De Vitis in Milan, Italy. Uh, he asks, in the description of this procedure, you mentioned the possibility of the cervix being detached from the umbilicus prior to uterine reimplantation. Are you not concerned about abdominal contamination um, due to cervical vaginal microbiome do you take any precautions to reduce this risk? Yeah, what we do it's uh we we have uh we one of the things that we realize is some patients they have fever in the postoperatory. And I think it it's around like 30% of those who we left in the the it's it's very hard to evaluate, but some of them have like this fever, and as they don't have pain because they, they have uh no innervation in their uterus and uh, so they don't they may have some fever so we are using antibiotics for three days now 
So when we do the procedure, we kept them on, with uh, antibiotics for three days. And uh, we didn't have any infection, uh, like um, so documented infection. We have some patients who said, well, I, I think I'm uh, having fever and stuff like that. So we just kept them on, on antibiotics for three days. Very well. But that's a good question. Yep. Um, this is an interesting question. Matt Wager from, uh, from Wisconsin, he asking, was cost data collected? And is a cost-effectiveness analysis plan to assess how this method of uterine ovarian preservation compares with other options like in vitro fertilization, surrogacy, and hormone replacement? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Some patients, they may have may prefer to have in vitro fortification. Uh, they will have at least one procedure, uh, won't have surgery, one less surgery at least. Uh, so that's probably one of the things you have to consider. In our, uh, in Brazil, I would say the cost effectiveness is very easy to assess because it's or you do or you don't because you have to pay for it. And 90% of the patients just, they cannot afford it. And uh, uh, in the other hand, like surgery is very cheap. So, and the government usually pays for it. And uh, usually it's uh, the access, it's very easy. So it's, you know, it's very easy to, to have this, to, to take this decision. But I agree that some countries and in some settings, patients may, may prefer other options. And I think that's okay. No problem. There One of the things that I like about uterine transposition is that you may use both, mm. but if you don't, you just have one option. Absolutely. Very, very true. So, um, right then now, as we get to the last few questions on the podcast, um, these questions are about uh, forming that team. Jorge Hegel says, how should the multidisciplinary team be formed to decide on uterine transposition and fertility preservation to have a successful outcome? Yeah, that's a very good question. I, th I think that's a truly multidisciplinary uh, procedure. Uh, also, you have to consider that most of the patients are not coming from gynecologists. So you are something that are offering something else to another specialty, which is most of the time colorectal surgery. So I think that you should start with tumor boards. That's the best place to, to discuss the cases. And uh, I've, some institutions, they already have this routine of uh, having a fertility uh, evaluation of, uh, of young patients. And I think that's something that all institutions should apply and should have available. Uh, and I think that uh, all institutions should consider about having a uterine transposition protocol in their institutions uh, to make it uh, feasible. Because surgically speaking, there is a learning curve, but I have no doubt that any gynecologist can perform this procedure. Uh, after probably three or four cases, we will be way more comfortable, but you need to start. So I would say start with two more boards, have a fertility guy in your team and uh, discuss with the colorectal surgeon. It's the best uh, specialty to start a protocol and uh, and start a protocol. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, obviously you're, you're being uh, quite modest and, uh, and obviously uh, you mentioned the learning curve. You are, you are an excellent surgeon. I've, I have seen you operate um, and uh, obviously this, this takes quite, quite a, 
quite a, a significant amount of skill. Um, so this brings us to to our last question. Um, this question uh, from Marta Shu, uh, also from Luigi De Vitis. Um, their, their, their point is you enrolled all consecutive patients undergoing uterine transposition, including the first case of uterine transposition uh, performed by two surgeons. Although the surgical outcomes are very promising in the early stages of the learning curve, mastering this procedure may be very difficult for several reasons. Obviously, indications are rare. Very few surgeons know how to do it. So what, what would be your recommendation to the surgeons themselves to promote um, the, the continued performance of uterine transposition? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. <laughs> I have thought about it uh, because I know it's a rare procedure. So we do, if we don't teach people and we don't help people to start it, uh, we would probably have this this setting where it's happening just in a couple institutions and we will never like take off really. So uh, we are working in our international protocol to help other surgeons interested in starting performing it. Uh, I think that if we have some, uh, we are working in a platform to to teach and make more available the the lectures and surgical films and other uh, sources to help other surgeons to, to perform it because I know there are many skillful surgeons around there that can do the procedure. Maybe they just need some help with the protocol to, to have on, uh, the authorization of the institution and stuff like that. And um, I think now we have data to start the protocol in uh, in uh, inside a other institutions with a good protocol. Uh, if you imagine like uh, a now cancer change the whole treatment of uh, a now carcinoma after eight cases, because uh, one single study changed all the treatment of the disease. So obviously I'm not saying that this is the end of the story and you don't need to do more research. I'm, what I'm saying that institutions I think now can start performing with, um, with a protocol. And so that's what we are doing now. We are trying to have this uh, international protocol that can be applied to institutions and work to teach other surgeons to perform the procedure. Uh, and maybe we work some workshops and do something like to, to teach other people to, to do it and start their cases. Well, Rayton, thank you so, so much. This has been really a, a fantastic opportunity to discuss uh, uterine transposition. Always enjoyed uh, speaking with you, learned so much from you. Uh, love watching your surgery and your videos. Um, you know, certainly, obviously, congratulations for, for this, for, for the innovation that it took to, um, to bring this procedure to the forefront of gynecologic oncology. So thank you very, very much. Thank you, Pedro. Thank you for helping me so much all these years and uh, helping us uh, to do research, to understand better how to do it and how to spread this kind of knowledge. And I, I have a lot to, uh, to to thank all the the, the journal and the, all the societies involved and all the, my team who have been working with me all these years and working hard to ensure the patient's best care and best interest. Thank you so much.